Now, I don't think any of you want me to be without the uh, the timer. They strapped me with that at my last church because without it, I was uh, out of control. And uh, so, learn not to inflict that kind of punishment on folks I'm trying to impress. So, there you have it. Um, well, we've got a several different scripture readings we're going to look at this morning. Um, and you'll understand why as I go through the outline, what, what these texts have to do with the title. So let me go ahead and, and read to you from God's Word. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told, the, told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Luke chapter 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last he appeared to me also. Acts 17. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. The Bereans were noble character, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as also did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Psalm 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then 2 Timothy 3 and 4, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I testify solemnly in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Okay, well, we're in a series, as you know, called Questions That Deserve an Answer. And today I want to answer the question, can you really trust the Bible? And I'm going to try to be as honest as I can. I've got 11 reasons why you shouldn't trust the Bible. Okay, 11 reasons that 
I have thought, I have been convinced of, that I have struggled through, and I'm not going to read it up front, but what I'm going to do is, uh, as we go through the points of the sermon, I'm going to keep bringing these objections up, because it's important, I think, for us to understand how to think about the kinds of objections so that we can make an answer, so we can have confidence in the answer to the question of, can we trust the Bible? Now, and I want to say at the outset, too, that libraries have been written on this issue, right? There are tons of books that you can wade through that would argue for both sides of the answer of, can you trust the Bible or not? And so, you know, what am I going to do in 35 to 40 minutes? Well, my hope is that I want to give you just some wisdom to know how to go about dealing with the objections that typically come so that you can be wise in your own pursuit of whether the Bible is trustworthy or not. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to try to help you become wiser. So if you're here exploring Christianity, if you're a skeptic of the Bible, or if you're a committed Christian, I think there's four things that you have to do if you're going to intelligently deal with the issues of the Bible. Okay, and so those are the four points on your outline. First, you have to look at the evidence. Second, you have to study the Bible. Third, you have to see that certainty takes commitment. And then fourth, you have to understand what the Bible is. And so these four things will put us in a position to reach an answer concerning whether or not you can trust the Bible. So first, you have to look at the evidence. Okay, and these, you know, if you look at John 20 real quick, if you see the, where the verses are there, John 20, Luke 1, 1 Corinthians 15, these are talking about people who wanted, who, who wanted evidence, who talked about evidence, right? Thomas wanted evidence, and he got it. Paul and Luke both refer people, refer to people as eyewitnesses, people that saw Jesus raised from the dead, people that were eyewitnesses of, of what's being written. And so, now what are the objections that come under this about looking at the evidence? If you look at the evidence, what are the objections that you might actually be able to deal with? Well, how about this one? What about all the other writings? Right? What about all the other the Gospels that were written? Right, The Gospel of Judas. The Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter. Did you know that there were Gospels that are ascribed to those people? Um, why do we have the books that we have? And why should I trust a fallible church to vote on what's in and what's out when I know that they had biases? Why should I trust what's in the New Testament when fallible people were the ones that decided what was in and what was out? Well, there's a story that's been told. It's been told, it's actually told just about every year in different ways and throughout the years that after Jesus' death, there was this amazing swirling of ideas about who Jesus was and what he was all about. And as people began to write their beliefs down, these differing opinions began to polarize and they began to fight and war with one another. Well, one group had a little bit more political sway at the time. And so it was able to seize power, get the upper hand, it labeled everybody else heretics and excommunicated them. Okay, and then it called the council together and then voted on which books should be in the Bible and which ones should be excluded. But because they were in power, all their books got voted in and all the other books were dismissed, were labeled as uninspired, authored by heretics. And the church has been living not with what was truly inspired by God, but just with the most powerful party politically at the time, was able to put forth. Anybody heard this? 
I mean, it seems like we hear it a lot. And, and it's, this sounds incredibly interesting. It's plausible, too, right? There's enough in it where maybe if you've never heard it, you're starting to think, wait a minute. Is that what happened? Well, the answer is no. It's not. That's not what happened. These other Gospels, these other writings that are appealed to, were all written at least 150 years after Jesus um, died, rose again. And what's interesting about that is that 150 years later, all the eyewitnesses were dead. Okay? Now, the New Testament, the documents of the New Testament were written from 15 to 60 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And so there were, the witnesses were still around. And, I mean, Paul appeals to them in 1 Corinthians 15. Many of these people are still alive. You can go talk to them. You can go ask them about their experience. And so all these other writings that are looked at as, you know, things that got edged out, well, if you look at the evidence, they actually were written much later, much, much later than the time of Christ or the apostles. And if you read these other writings, has anybody had a chance to do that? I mean, they call them Gospels, but... They're so different from the Gospels that are in the Bible. These are, they're from an outside pagan religion called Gnosticism. And what happened was these Gnostics tried to blend Gnosticism with Christianity. And these Gospels are all an attempt to blend the two things together. Now, these Gnostics, they completely dismissed the Old Testament. Okay, they had nothing to do with the Old Testament. They promoted sexual perversion. They denigrated the physical realm to the point where they actually said that the act of creation was a mistake by a God who was a bumbling idiot. Okay, and that Jesus never really took on flesh, but just seemed to be in flesh. And that on the cross, when this person was being crucified, Jesus, the spirit, was actually sitting in a tree, watching the whole thing and laughing. I mean, if you read these Gospels, that's the content. That's what they talk about. And so this is what the evidence shows. The reason we have the books of the New Testament specifically, and also the Old Testament, the reason we have the 27 books that we have in the, in the New Testament is because actually Jesus lived and worked with these 12 men that he appointed to be apostles, and he gave them his authority. Okay, now the term apostle, it's important. It's there's something special about being an apostle. Herman Ritterboss says this. He says, The apostles were derived from the Jewish legal system, where one person could be given legal power to represent another person. The representative who had such power of attorney was regarded as that person himself. Therefore, to receive an apostle was to receive the person who sent him. Okay, and so the apostles initially exercised their authority orally through their preaching, but once they began to write, they placed their words, their written words, on the same level with their preaching. Okay, and there's verses that show this in the Bible. The ch if you do the study, if you actually do the research and look at the facts and search the evidence, the church never ever had a vote on which books were in and which books were out. Okay, that's what the historical evidence shows is that what happened was these there were teachers that rose up in the church and were teaching things that were not consistent with what had been received. Okay, there were there were false teachers. And most of these false teachers decided they wanted to pick and choose certain of the books that were part of the collection that was accepted. 
So Marcion is one that maybe some of you have heard. In 140 AD, Marcion said, you know, the God of the Old Testament is God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is a different God. He's the God of love. And Marcion said, you know, the Old Testament, we don't need that. And in fact, you know what? The only books that are really inspired are pieces of Luke and then 10 of the 13 letters of Paul. This is what Marcion claimed when he rose up. This is what he taught. Now, the church didn't get together and then vote on which books were in and which books were out. What they did was they came together and they said, wait, Marcion is wrong. He's out of line with what the church has accepted from the beginning. It's important to understand this. Okay, um, let me give you an illustration. We have a canyon next to our house, and we have figured out a way to put a zip line in this canyon. And we've got, it's about 175 to 200 feet, it's hard to tell um, how far the zip line is, but there's this slope that goes up this way pretty steep, and then there's a bunch of palm trees on this side. So we attach, well, there's a, so if you go up this slope, there's a, there's sets of trees that go up the slope, and then, so we attach it to one of the trees on the slope, and then the end point is, is a palm tree. I've got scars on the back, on my back, actually, if, if you, uh, well, anyways, just to prove it. But um, <clears throat> not to go into that. Here's, here's what's funny is that we set up the zip line and we just had a blast. The kids love it. I love it. We had a good time. We got neighbors that are walking through the canyon, walking their dogs that are trying it. We're like the hit. You know, it, it's just we're having this great time. Well, so we keep coming back. And pretty soon the kids and I are thinking, well, why don't we connect it to the tree that's up a little bit higher? You know, right? And, and you know what? What about that tree? You know, if we actually climbed up and stood in the branch, we could go way up even higher and launch from up high to get a significant increase in speed. And, well, we've got to make sure on the backside because we're running into a palm tree here. So we've got to, we've got to take that into consideration. But so, so we've done this, and we've been doing this for, I guess, a month and a half, and it's great fun. And, you know, if you ever come over and you're interested in doing the zip line, we'll go down the canyon, we'll set it up, and we'll take it down. Well, so here, here's what's funny is that the last time we were down there, I think it was Thursday early evening, and we were progressing up a little bit higher, you know, going up to the next tree that we hadn't been before because it looked good and it looked like we could make it happen. Well, as we were setting it up on this higher tree, one of my neighbors came down from, he lived in the, the house that, like the back of his house goes down the slope into the canyon. And so he comes down and I think we had kind of shouted back and forth, hey, how you doing? Hey, that's a cool zip line. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it. You know, and so I thought he was coming down because he wanted to try it. But what he said was, you know, look, hey, I'm sorry. I don't want to be one of those people, but I think what's happening is you're actually getting really close. I think you're probably actually on my property if you're connecting to this tree right here. And you know, look, I really like what you're doing. I mean, it's cool that you have the kids doing this and, and, and it's good, but What's he, and what's he concerned about? Liability, right. Because if we're connected to his property, right, then, and we get hurt, well, technically, I guess he's liable. And so I said, oh, well, gosh, you know what? You're doing this the right way. You don't seem like a guy. You're not trying to kill our joy. Totally understand. Thanks for coming down and telling us. We'll take it off and put it back down. And, uh, and it was funny because initially he's watching us do this, and he's seeing us creep up over time because he's seen us do this enough. Now, but it wasn't until we actually got close enough to his property line that he actually thought about, wait a second, let me figure out where that line is, okay? And so 
I don't know if he actually pulled out the blueprints, but maybe that's what he did. But he had figured out, though, it was once we got close to the line that he, it wasn't that he came down and drew the line because it didn't exist before. But what he did was he came down and clarified where exactly the line was. That's what happens with church councils. Okay? When the church gets together, and this happens you know, numbers, numerous times throughout the history of the church, there are times when the church has to get together because they say, you know what, there are people who are denying things that have never been denied before. There are people who are denying what we have always received, what we have always taught, and it's now close enough to where we're concerned, and what we need to do is we need to come together and speak with one voice and remind everybody in the church where the line has always been. And when they draw that line and they remind people of what the truth is, then you find that there are some people on the right side and some people on the wrong side. Okay? And so the church never, Dan Brown has said this, the church, and, and he's, he's, I mean, it's great fiction, wonderful storytelling, but bad history. The church never, ever decided that Jesus was God. Okay? Constantine didn't declare a council, have them all come together and, and make them declare Jesus God. They didn't decide that Jesus was God. What they said was, we have from the beginning confessed that Jesus is God. Okay, and the same thing is true about the books, the books of Scripture. It's not that there was this controversy that people had to vote and some just barely got in. Like, you hear people talk like this, and it's just not true. If you look at the evidence, you will see that what happened was there were certain books that were accepted. And when people began to deny those books and come up with false sets of books, the church responded by saying, no, these are the books that belong in the canon. These are the ones that belong, that are inspired by God. Okay, and so it's important to understand that. It's important because um, that helps us deal with these objections about why. People don't trust why. Well, and what's interesting is that it's not like we only have one or two copies. Okay, there are 5,300 Greek manuscripts that are portions of the New Testament. Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, and if you do the research, the, the second most, the, the, the book that has the second most copies of manuscripts that we have is the Iliad by Homer. You know how many we have? 684. Anybody doubt Homer wrote, Iliad, wrote the Iliad? Anybody doubt the, I mean, no. And we have 5,300 Greek manuscripts from the New Testament. Plus, we've got over 19,000, 19,000 Latin translations of the Greek in, in manuscript form. Okay, plus, on top of that, if you throw out all of the manuscript stuff that we have, which, I mean, it's incredibly compelling, but if you throw all that stuff out and you just look at the church, the early church writers, you can find every single verse from the New Testament quoted in the early church writers except for 11 verses. Okay, so the church didn't decide what was in and what was out. The church received from the Lord what was inspired, and they always treated it that way. Okay, so there you have it. There you have it. Now, some people ask, what about the different English translations? You know, how can I trust? You guys can't even figure out what the English is supposed to say. There's like 15 different English versions of the Bible. You know, if you can't figure it out, why do you expect me to trust the Bible? 
I, I don't want to be patronizing, but um, the difference in the English translations is based on the translation. And some translators say, you know what, the best way to translate is to go word by word. Every Greek word should have an English word corresponding to it. And other people say, no, 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 nobody writes English that way, so we'd rather, we'd rather do phrase-by-phrase translation. Okay, so that's what accounts for the differences. It's, it's really how much of a paraphrase versus a literal wooden word-by-word translation are we going to have. And, so, and, and I'm bringing this up because if you look at the evidence, a lot of these objections just end up not... <laughs> if you see the evidence, you kind of think, well, nobody who's done any study would actually say this, unless there was some maybe hidden agenda, I don't know. And so, okay, now, in the realm of evidence, though, you also have the issues of science and evolution, right? Miracles. How do we prove that miracles happen? And hasn't science sort of disproved the Bible? Hasn't evolution shown that the Bible is just a bunch of myths? Good questions. Let's look at the evidence. Okay, what does the evidence tell us? Well, first, let's ask about science. Can science account for every single thing in life today? I mean, think about just today. Don't don't even think about 2,000 years ago. Today, can science give a rational explanation, a scientific explanation for everything that goes on today? I don't think so. I mean, science can't account for beauty. It can't explain art, what it does to us. It can't explain fully how the mind works. Or it can't explain how everybody seems to have a sense that there's something transcendent. There is some knowledge of God that's in all of us. And it's true that, the, that the, the church actually has failed in many ways by saying the Bible teaches things it doesn't. You know, when the church condemned Galileo, the church was wrong. The church was wrong for condemning Galileo because the Bible doesn't teach that the earth is in the center of the universe. And so the church has stubbed its toe significantly in certain areas. But to say that science disproves the Bible, is, it's, it's inaccurate. And here's a, here's a quote. N.T. Wright says that science by definition, is a study of what can be repeated. Science is a study of what can be repeated. History, on the other hand, is a study of what cannot be repeated. And so this is helpful because if you want to ask about the supernatural or about miracles, it can't, you can't base it. I mean, science can't answer that question. Whether the miracles happen or not can't be answered by science because science can't produce the same situation today that existed 2,000 years ago and can't make a scientific claim that's verifiable to see if miracles can happen. And so, so that's, that's one thing, that science isn't designed to answer historical questions. Okay, on top of that, if you think, now look, I'm not a scientist and I don't know all of the bits and pieces of where the, the Big Bang and evolutionary theory is, but... I can say that it does take faith to believe in evolution because we don't have all the data. We don't, the, the, the fossil record has incredibly glaring holes in it. We still don't exactly know how you get macroevolution where one thing becomes something else. Um, the Big Bang takes faith, right? The Big Bang is not scientifically verifiable. It's a theory. And so... Um, again, it, this doesn't mean that life didn't evolve. It doesn't mean that evolution is wrong necessarily, but it just means it takes faith to believe in evolution. And my argument is that it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in what the Bible teaches about the supernatural. The Bible says that there is a God who works in the world. 
evolution says that human life came because of a cosmic accident. And I think if you ask most people, they would, they would probably think that God is more the explanation than, than evolution. But so anyways, but how can you verify the, that the miracles happened? Well, there's lots of ways to do this, and books have been written. But one thing I wanted to point out is that this is one of the reasons why people's names are in the Bible. Okay? John wrote about Thomas, and not just any Thomas, but Thomas who's called Didymus in John 20, because he wanted you to know that if you'd heard the gospel around the time that it was written, you could go find Thomas and ask him. Okay? Paul says there were 500 people who saw Jesus, and a lot of them are still alive. But you could go ask them. Look at Luke with all these eyewitnesses. You could go find Jairus and ask him about his daughter. You could find Simon the Cyrene or, or one of the Marys or Joseph of Arimathea or Zacchaeus. They wrote the names into their books because they wanted you to know that you could go verify this stuff. They weren't just writing things after the fact, hoping to pull one over. They were actually telling you who the people were that were involved in these things and telling you if you want to go verify it. If you want proof that this happened, go find the blind man who was born blind. And so uh, N.T. Wright says this. He says, The early Christians didn't invent the empty tomb and the sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith they already had. Rather, they developed that faith because of the empty tomb and because they'd seen Jesus risen from the dead. In terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, this is as watertight as one is likely to find. There's a historian talking. And he goes on, he says, There are, in the normal sense required by historians, these are provable events. I regard the conclusion of the empty tomb and the risen Jesus as coming in the same sort of category as the death of Augustus in AD 14 or the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So a lot of people want to make it sound like if you are a Christian, it's because you have this blind faith. And what I think that if you actually examine the evidence, if you look at the evidence, a lot of Christians are sort of afraid of the evidence, right? Because we're not sure what are we going to find. Like, I don't want to find out. Ignorance is bliss. I'd rather not know if it's going to be bad news, right? Well, I'm just telling you that if you actually study the evidence, there are good reasons to believe the Bible. There are good reasons to trust, that the, trust the Bible, to see that it's verifiable. And I'm going, to get, I'm going to argue that the evidence is so strong that it warrants reading the Bible. You can't not read the Bible if you, if you actually look at the evidence. Okay, now, if you actually do that, though, that generates a whole other set of problems. <laughs> Reading the Bible does produce problems because once you read the Bible, there's a new set of objections that come up. If you're going to trust the Bible, yeah, you have to look at the evidence, but then secondly, you have to study, study the Bible. That's point two. And I say this because you're going to find things as you read the Bible that are going to require more than just a cursory read. Okay, think about this. How can we say we trust the Bible when the Bible oppresses women, when the Bible justifies slavery, when the heroes in the Bible are guilty of polygamy, adultery, racism, legalism? How in the world do you expect me to trust in a Bible that does that? Well, I think the answer is you need to study the Bible. Okay, If you study the Bible, let's study the Bible to see if these things are so. And what's amazing is the Acts 17 passage that we read, that's exactly what the people did to Paul. Paul is preaching to them every day, 
And every day they're going back to the scriptures that they had to see if these things were true. That warrants our study. Paul spent three Sabbaths reasoning with them from the scriptures. Okay, and so we're looking at prolonged time. And I think when you do the study, what you find is that the biblical texts that deal with these issues of women and slavery are actually more loving, more caring, and more helpful to oppressed people than any other culture of their day. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, the Bible actually gave legal rights to women where they had none in other cultures. Women were treated as property in other cultures, and yet the Bible gave them rights. In the New Testament, Jesus shocked the people of his day by speaking with women, by teaching women. You know the story of Mary and Martha, where Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, Martha's, yeah, she's busy doing so many things. To sit at the feet of a rabbi, that was big. In some circles, you didn't sit at the feet of a rabbi unless you were going to become a rabbi yourself. And so Jesus was shocking in terms of the way that he dealt with women. He esteemed them highly. And what's amazing is that by law, women couldn't inherit. They had to inherit through their husbands or through their, um, through their fathers. But the church taught that women have an inheritance that's equal to that of, of a son. And so we also see that the New Testament opposed the oppression of women in society because it told husbands to get their acts together and stop doing that, to love their wives as Christ loved the church, to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers wouldn't be hindered. And the church honored and cared for women in ways that made the church stand out from the culture. So with slavery, this is another sticky issue. What's interesting is if you do the study, if you actually study the scriptures that talk about slavery, the Bible never endorsed the kind of racial slavery that existed in America. Okay, the slavery that the Bible talked about was indentured servanthood to pay off debts. If you owed somebody money, you couldn't pay it, then you would become their servant. And what's interesting is that there was a law that every seven years, those slaves had to be set free. And so the racial slavery that occurred in our own country that started with kidnapping, the Bible condemned it. The Bible did not support it at all. And if you read the book of Philemon, there are people who argue that the book of Philemon is actually a time bomb that Paul is setting on the institution of slavery so that it could go off when the culture was ready. And so I think, again, if you see these things, you'll realize that the Bible is not... (laughs) If you study the Bible, and this is what happens a lot of times with people who have objections to it, when you study the Bible and actually see what it really says, what it says doesn't sound a lot like the objections that are put against it. And if you've got other issues, we're going to have a Q&A time following, and so please bring your questions to that. Now, what about the heroes of the Bible? I used to get frustrated by this. How in the world can God bless Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when they were adulterers, when they had multiple wives, when they treated their children the way that they did, when they ignored God? I mean, what in the world? Like, why would God bless these people? 
And so as I've thought through that, I know that's been an argument that's been thrown out. I mean, David murdered, committed adultery, lied about it, murdered, you know, married the woman and then had her, you know, um, actually didn't have, the baby died, but um, wanted to. What's the deal with that? And as I thought through that this week, I thought, well, shoot, first of all, God, thank you for blessing these people. (laughs) Thank God that the Bible is full of people who have incredibly broken lives that God doesn't just cast off because they don't have their act together. Thank God that he didn't just choose people who had their lives all worked out and everything was right with them because if he did, I mean, I'm not in. And so thank God that he works with polygamists and adulterers and racists and parents that don't know how to raise their children. But then secondly, I also thought about the fact that it's not like these folks didn't have to, I mean, these folks suffered, right? If you just read the book of Genesis, you can, I mean, I know there have been books on psychology from, from Jewish folks talking about the dysfunctional families in the Bible, and all they need to do is Genesis. You think about what Genesis is about, with starting with Abraham, I mean, having two wives does not make for a happy home. Okay, it just doesn't. Taking on a mistress, a handmaiden, to have children might be a good way to get children, but it does not produce joy and peace and happiness in the home. Playing favorites with your children does not produce the good life. And you see this. And so, I mean, what we see, if you actually look and study the Bible, is that God actually does, in the midst of him blessing them and being kind and merciful to them as he is to us, he also does have them reap the fruit of their foolishness. When they make foolish decisions, they do end up living with the consequences of their decisions. And so I think the other thing that is important to note when you begin to study the Bible is the whole issue of prophecy. This is kind of nuts because there are people that have done, I've looked at these lists, something like 300 predictions is one conservative estimate in the Old Testament. From the time that the fall happened, from the time where Adam and Eve sinned, Right from then, all throughout the Old Testament, there are just hundreds of predictions of this person who's going to come and undo the damage that Adam and Eve did. There's someone who's going to come and who's going to destroy the work of the devil, who's going to come and fix everything that's wrong and bring in a world where everything is put to rights. And there's predictions made about this person and if you line up all the prophecies, and you can do a Google search if you want, just look up Bible prophecy fulfilled Jesus. They'll actually show you the Old Testament and the New Testament where Jesus fulfills these things. It says he was going to be born of a virgin, and he was. He's going to be a descendant of Abraham, and he was. A descendant of Judah, and he was. Of David, and he was. He'd be born in Bethlehem, and he was. There's a prophecy in Daniel where they say it actually predicts to the exact day when Jesus would come in triumphal entry. 176,000, no, no, 173,000 482 days from the time when the king of Persia lets Israel go back into the promised land from the exile to the day that Jesus goes in on a colt riding into the city. And they've done the math. (laughs) They've done the math. I mean, it was predicted to the day. The predictions were that he was going to come and do battle with evil, that he'd be rejected and die a humiliating death, and that he'd be raised in glory. 
and that he would usher in a time of blessing that would change the world. Every single one of these prophecies has come true. I think about it, like Warren Buffett, right? You think about the stock market. You only have to be right like three times out of ten, but you, when you're right, you've got to be right big, right? You cut your losses short, and you let your profits run. That's what William O'Neill says. So if you could find out what Warren Buffett was buying the day before he bought it, right, pretty trustworthy because of his track record, right? Same thing with the scriptures. Boy, it's got this amazing track record of predicting. It's, it's made these prophetic predictions, and they all come true. I think that makes a pretty strong argument for the trustworthiness of the Bible. If, it, if it's been right this many times, you can trust it with your life. And I think the more you study it, the more you see it. And so now third, third, you also have to see that certainty takes commitment. Okay? If you look at the evidence, that can remove certain roadblocks that would stand in the way of you reading the Bible and taking it for, and trusting it. If you begin to study the Bible as you see objections or hear about contradictions, things, that, things of that nature, dealing with those contradictions, studying the Bible will also help remove those, those, those obstacles from you to, to be able to trust it. But you won't get certainty until you actually commit. Okay? And so if you are looking for an airtight, waterproof argument that you can use or that I could use on you right now, this moment, that would work on anybody, any day, of any year, it doesn't exist. Because in order to get the assurance, in order to be completely certain about the trustworthiness of the Bible, you need to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what the psalm is about. It's an invitation to certainty. And Jesus said the same thing to his disciples when they said, Lord, where are you? Jesus said, come and see. Jesus was inviting people to come and to see what he was doing. Again, Paul invited the Bereans to check, to see if what he was saying was true. And so I think this is a lot like marriage. You know, you just don't know what marriage is going to be like. You don't know what it's going to be like to marry somebody or what life will be like together until you actually say, I do, and begin to build a life. Right? You can do the classes, you can do premarital counseling, you can do the Myers-Briggs test, you can figure all that stuff out, but... It's not until you actually say, I do, and commit that you'll find out what it's really like, that you'll have certainty that you can build a life together. I mean, I could tell you about the times when reading the Bible, it just resonates deep in my heart. I could tell you about ecstatic joy that I have had as I've seen how the Bible fits together. I could tell you about times of almost euphoria where I realized for the first time what Paul is really doing in making a reference to the Old Testament and seeing the pieces fit together. And heck, I can tell you about times of, I mean, I think a lot of you have experienced this, where it's God's word that comes to you at that moment when you're struggling, and it's exactly what you need. Right? But until you make the commitment, until you say, okay, I am going to trust in you, God. I am going to trust that there's enough evidence for me to believe this enough to start reading it, and there's enough evidence here for me to study this and take it seriously. There's enough evidence for me to see if these things are so. When you make that commitment, that's when God shows himself. That's when God comes. That's when God does something amazing. And then you find what we read earlier, that the law of the Lord is perfect, 
It restores the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It's better than gold, even much fine gold. In keeping them, there is great reward. You find that. You find that when you make a commitment. And what's amazing is that it's not just a sales pitch. Well, you just got to commit. Or at least it's not, you're not being asked to do anything that, boy, the, the people who wrote this didn't do. Think about this. The 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. Countless people in the first century, people who saw Jesus and who saw the resurrection, ended up being killed, testifying that the resurrection happened. Okay? It's one thing for you to say, oh, I believe this, but it's another thing for the people that are writing this stuff and promoting it, because they know if it's true or not. And yet, the people who wrote the Bible, they had enough certainty that they were willing to stake their life and their eternal destiny that what they were saying was true. That's part of the invitation. And I think this all comes together. One of the strongest incentives for why you should make this commitment comes in our fourth point, when you understand what the Bible is. That's our fourth point. To see if the Bible is trustworthy, you have to understand what the Bible is. And this is the Second Timothy passage. And it's not just, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's the breath of God. It's the Word of God. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I testify solemnly in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. What's important about that? It's not just that, well, here's a passage that says that the, that the Bible is inspired, but that's circular reasoning, so, you know, I'm not really sure that that's that convincing. Um, but verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, what we see here is that the Bible, this is the authority of God. Okay? What the Bible is, this is the authority of God. This is God's authority being set free in the world. This is where God puts his power. Paul says, preach the word. Why? Because Paul knows that when you preach the word, when you share with people the truth of the word, there is power. God's spirit actually comes with the word when it's preached. When you read, when you seek the word, when you read it, when you study it, you are letting God's authority have its way in your life. You are connecting. It's like the Bible is one of the places where, where heaven and earth meet. It's where heaven and earth meet. It's where God's authority, it's, it's unleashed. And you have to remember, because sometimes when we think about, well, the authority of God, it sounds like God up there with a big stick ready to whack us when we step out of line, because we think about authority that way. But what does authority look like in the Scriptures? If we actually look at the authority and ask, well, what does authority look like? What do you see? You see Jesus. You see Jesus, the one who had all authority coming to serve. You see Jesus stooping down and taking on the form of a slave and washing his friend's feet. You see him going to the cross to die 
so that people whose lives are messed up can feel the power of God. This is the authority of God unleashed in the world. And if you let it, if you commit to it, if you let this authority have its way with you, everything changes. This is a summons to a new kind of humanity. This is a summons to being, to reorienting everything about your life. This is a summons to you to come and to follow Jesus. To have Him be the supreme authority in your life. To have His loving authority over you. To have His, 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 His ability to speak the truth to you in love. His ability to fill you with His power. And everything changes. When you let the authority of God come into your life, everything, everything changes. Now, what's amazing about this is that this is an old book, right? How can a 2,000-year-old book really make a difference in your life, right? And people say, I mean, I've heard that a lot. And actually, it's, a little, it's kind of a half-truth, right? Because most of the Bible is actually a lot older than 2,000 years. But it's true. The Bible is outdated. It's old-fashioned. It speaks of a culture and to a culture that's ancient, 2,000 years old. And I think, actually, this is one of the reasons why some people have said that every generation needs to rearticulate how the Bible applies to life today. We all have a responsibility to figure out, well, what does this ancient book have to say to us today? What does our commitment, what does it mean to submit to this authority in our day, in our time, in our city, in our area, with our idols, with our culture? How do we respond? What are the answers that are needed? And N.T. Wright has given this great analogy about this. He says that it's almost like what we've found in the Bible is a five-act play. A five-act play. The first four acts are creation, fall, Israel, and Jesus. And we have the first scene of the fifth act, and we know the end but we don't know what's in between. The first scene is the book of Acts. The end is Revelation 21 and 22, which is a completely renewed heaven and earth, a completely perfected existence, a glorious existence, where where everything is put to rights. And he says that our task then is to live in a way that is consistent with the first four acts, and leads us naturally to the end of Act 5. And this is what he says. He says we're all called to improvise. And he says improvisation doesn't mean a free-for-all where anything goes, but actually a disciplined and careful listening and a constant attention to the themes, rhythms, and harmonies of the complete performance so far, the performance which we're now called to continue. At the same time, of course, it invites us while being fully obedient to the music so far, to explore fresh expressions, provided they'll eventually lead to that ultimate uh, resolution, which appears in the New Testament as the goal. All Christians, all churches are free to improvise their own variations designed to take the music forward. But no Christian, no church is free to play out of tune. To change the metaphor back to the theater, all the actors are free to improvise their own fresh scenes, but no actor, no, comp- no company is free to improvise scenes from another play 
or a play with a different ending. This is why we need to read it. We don't read it because we can check a box off on our spiritual to-do list. We need to read it so that we know how to act. We need to read it so that we can tell, well, what has God done up to this point? And how can we get into the stream, the current, of what God has done up and through the church so that we can get into that current and then begin to anticipate where we're going and try to line up so that people might see our lives individually and as a community and say, wow, this is a group of people that are headed for a glorious and perfected existence. Well, how can we not read it? This is why Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where else can we go? You have the word of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And God, thank you that you are not just the God of creation, or not just the God of scripture, but you're the God of creation, that the evidence supports your word, and that diligent study of your word reaps benefits and payoff. God, we see that when we study the truth of it, it doesn't, it really does resonate deep into our souls. Help us to be people who love your word. Give us a renewed passion to understand it so that our lives would be transformed, so that we might live in a way that anticipates what is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.